Uh, so this night's reading is from Luke 22, verses 47 to 65. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this, and he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance, and when some there there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked at him closely and said, this man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else said to him, You are also one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you are talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will, dis- you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Then the men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. All right, evening friends. How are we? Glad three of you are good. That's excellent. Hey, let me begin tonight with a word to the wise. Uh, This is a hot tip, if you will. Don't ever travel on extended, complicated trips with me. Uh, Let me explain why. I have got stories to burn of why it is a bad idea to come travelling on extended, complicated trips with me. Number one, I have... These are just three. These are the first three that came to mind. Number one, on my very first overseas trip, within one hour of landing at the airport, I was in the fetal position, just tucked up, so scared, out of my mind, feeling out of control, completely unable to understand the language of the country we were in or anything else. I just completely froze, and I was only in New Zealand. It's like... Unbelievable. Number two, we decided it would be a really good idea to take our family on a holiday to Cairns. Who wouldn't want to go on a holiday to Cairns? Let's do it Fortescue style. Let's take all our camping gear on a plane. And so we took like tents and eskies and a whole PVC pipe full of metal poles. And we had like about 4,000 pieces of oversized luggage. And we got the train into the airport. We arrived at the airport and went up to the counter where you check all your bags in. And the lady said to us, I'm sorry, your plane has already left. And, and I could feel tears just hitting the back of my shirt. And what everyone else in my family couldn't see is my tears just hitting this lady in front of me. And she's like, well, it hasn't actually left. It's just sort of you're past the check-in time. And I'm like, 
And she was like, I'll just see what I can do. And she put in the magic password, and we just made the plane. Uh, number three, I was flying to Israel. I'm at Bangkok Airport. I'm going to check in. I give away, hand over my passport. They said, can we have your travel documents? I hand over my travel documents. They said, can we have all your luggage? I hand over all my luggage. I have no ID. I've got nothing left on me. They've got everything. And they go, thank you. Just go and sit on that chair over there. We'll be back soon. And I sat there until nine minutes before my plane was due to leave. When a little man came out of the door and said, no worries, here's all your things, now you can go. And I was absolutely sweating bullets. Unbelievable. If you want disasters to descend upon you, and if you want to feel completely out of control, then come on an extended trip with me, because things get out of control really quickly. Now, as we jump into Luke chapter 22, that's exactly what it looks like in Luke chapter 22. One minute... There is Jesus, and he is instructing his disciples in the reality that they should pray in order that they might avoid temptation. And then the very next minute, there is probably 600 people descending upon Jesus in that same scene, coming to arrest him. And the scene is as chaotic as it is bizarre. But in the midst of it all, what I want you to see tonight is this. It is the beauty of the cross. And the mercy of God and the love of Christ for you and the authority of Jesus. So we're going to walk our way through this little section in Luke, uh, the end of the beginning. It's going to bridge Easter and we're going to dig into these last hours and days of Jesus' life on earth. We're going to see what happens in his death and resurrection. We're going to walk with him prior to his ascension. And I want to tell you that over these weekends, including this weekend, the next five weekends, these are great opportunities for you to invite a friend. Someone who you know is searching for Jesus, someone you know who needs to know Jesus, sign them up by Monday at four o'clock, otherwise you'll miss out on a ticket for 6.45 these days. But sign them up, get them here, because you're going to get the chance for them to hear about Jesus and meet Jesus face to face. Let's do this. Well, let's pick up the story tonight in verse 47, where we see the power of the crowd. And there you see Jesus. And he's speaking with his disciples, and suddenly this large crowd descends upon him. Now, it's easy to sort of skip over verse 47, but I just want to just sit here in verse 47 for a moment, because there are three things I think it's really important for us to note here about the authority and power of this crowd. First of all, uh, the language of verse 47 is literally, uh, Jesus was speaking, and behold, a crowd! It's like all of a sudden, just out of a puff of smoke, there's this crowd of people, and there they are, seeking to arrest Jesus, piercing an intimate moment with his disciples. Here is a crowd with swords and clubs, and they are intent on the one thing that they've been seeking to do for days, even weeks, and that is killing Jesus. And now, it's happening. Into the world of the Lord comes this immense power. And that's not the only thing we see in verse 47. We also see that, yes, there is this crowd and sort of comes out of nowhere in Luke's language. But Luke slows the process down for us and he says, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. Jesus had shared his most precious moments with these 12 men. He had fed them spiritually and physically. He had drawn them inside his mind. He'd revealed himself to them 
in all his fullness, his full identity and power they had seen. And now one of them, one of the chosen 12, leading a crowd of hundreds coming out to destroy him. There's an incredible movement within Judas that is captured here where the one who carried merciful content to the masses is now coming with murderous intent with the masses to take Jesus' life. It's a breathtaking moment. And if only for the third thing we see, and that is that Judas comes with a kiss. There's only one other time in Luke's Gospel where a kiss is mentioned, and it's in the story of the sinful woman. The woman who comes to Jesus knowing her brokenness, knowing that she needs mercy, knowing that she needs Jesus more than anything else in the world, and she overwhelms him with kisses and tears and wets his feet and dries them with her hair. She knows Jesus and the mercy that he can give her, and she is overwhelmingly appreciative and thankful toward him. And that's the sign of a kiss. Now, just like today when someone enters your house or you see your Aunt Matilda for the first time in six months and you, she gives you a hug and a nice peck on the cheek and you sort of go, oh, but it happens. Uh, it's a sign of warmth, welcome, connection. And yet here, this kiss is laid like a bullseye for a marksman. Far from being warmth and connection, Judas is intent on bringing about Jesus' demise. And I wanted us just to pause here because it's important for us to see that the power that this crowd has is going to be successful. And Luke is just making us just stop and see. Look at verse 54. In the end, this is the end of the story. Seizing him, they led him away, took him into the house of the high priest. Jesus was done away with. Under the cover of darkness, the power of the crowd is strong and swift and yet equally absurd. Because those of us who know Jesus, those of us who follow Jesus, who perhaps have been reading through Luke's gospel, those of us sitting here tonight who have some understanding of Jesus knows that whatever power they might have pales into insignificance when compared to the power in the one called Jesus. Remember, this is the man whose just words are able to calm a storm and indeed his words are able to kill a tree in one moment. This is the man whose touch heals disease and even raises the dead. This is the man whose just very presence unsettles the power of determined demons. And indeed what plays out here is no different despite the outcome. For despite the power of the crowd and the success of their mission, what we really see in this passage is actually the power of Jesus. Have a look at me from verse 48 as we follow along the story. And so uh, Judas approaches Jesus to kiss him and Jesus asked him, Judas... Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And when Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, No more of this. Now just look back over that section of text there and ask yourself, who's, who's really in charge here? 
Despite the 600 people who've come to arrest Jesus, who's really in charge of this scene? It's Jesus, right? Although Judas looks like he's in control, it's Jesus who's in control entirely of what's happening here. And he asks Judas a question with the language and tone of a prosecutor who is bearing down on a weak defendant. He says there, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? He'd sort of say, are you doing something so ridiculous? Are you doing something so mad? And quickly the scene becomes one in which it's not Judas coming to actually grab hold of Jesus, but it's Jesus grabbing hold metaphorically of Judas and giving him one last opportunity to repent. Judas has one last chance to see just how far the love of money has taken him. It's Judas here who is really on trial. Even though there's 600 plus men there armed for battle, it's Jesus who is calm and cool and collected. And he is interrogating Judas. But in typical Peter fashion, and if you've read the Gospels, you know that Peter is impetuous and fast-paced and makes decisions in his own time. We know it's Peter from John chapter 18. But Peter steps in with all the skill of a five-year-old doing neurosurgery. He grabs hold of a sword and he swipes at someone and the only thing he manages to do is he comes up against 600 armed people who chop off an ear. Now that is not all that competent. I can't speak, I am hopeless with guns and swords, and if you want to lose at laser tag, please invite me. I'd gladly come uh, to help the other team. But Peter takes the cake. With hundreds of people in front of him, he chops off an ear. And the scene is beautifully comedic, if only for this, that Peter is seeking to defend Jesus, who made the whole world. It's just a bizarre scene. And if there's any question of the authority of Jesus, it's answered in his response. In verse 51, as a malaise is about to begin, Jesus says, no more of this. And silence descends on the whole scene with just a word. And not long after, Jesus starts up again like a prosecutor going at the defendants. Verse 52. Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion? That you've come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. You see, to Jesus, there's nothing surprising about what's happening here. This is expected. This is planned. It's time for these events to take place. This crowd have come under the cover of darkness to a quiet location outside Jerusalem to carry out their wicked plans, away from big crowds who might oppose them, big crowds who might support Jesus. Because as Jesus points out to them, he has done nothing wrong. If he'd done the wrong thing when he was teaching in the temple courts, they could have arrested him. If he was doing the wrong thing when he was in their midst and amongst them, they could have arrested him. But Jesus bears no violent intent to Rome or the Jews. Jesus has spoken no word of maliciousness to Rome or to the Jews. If he had, their plot would have merit, but it has none. And they're acting with underhanded means and dark motives in the darkness. And they're going to have success. 
They're going to arrest him and do away with him, but what's clear from this passage is that their success is not of their own making. They will succeed in carrying out their plans only because in that hour, the evil powers of darkness and the devil are being permitted by God to bring the Son of Man to death. That's why Jesus says there in verse 53, this is your hour. As if to say there's not been any other hour, there won't be any other hour, this is the hour. This is your hour when darkness will reign, when darkness will assume authority as Jesus prepares to hand himself over to suffer, as Jesus prepares to hand himself into the grip of humiliation, and suffering, and ultimately death on a cross, not because he's not mighty enough to prevent all of this, but because he voluntarily delivers himself to be sacrificed for the salvation of guilty humankind. Indeed, in one of the other Gospels, Jesus says, don't you imagine that I couldn't call down upon you thousands upon thousands of angels right now? But he doesn't do that, because Jesus is voluntarily walking to death for the salvation of the very people who are before him trying to arrest him and kill him. I'm reminded of Isaiah chapter 53 and the richness of what the prophet expects is all on display here from verse 9. It says, He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he'd done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Indeed, Jesus had tried to explain all of this to the disciples on numerous occasions, but they could not understand it. Uh, Just a couple of chapters earlier in Luke chapter 18, this happens. Jesus took the twelve and told them, We're going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He'll be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. And on the third day he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them. They did not know what he was talking about. Friends, as we look in on what's happening here, The disciples could not grasp it. But I want to say to you, we need to pause and make sure we truly grasp what we see here. For again and again, we see in the Gospels the love of God that is toward us in Jesus. And even here in the midst of this chaotic scene, we see it, it, how the death of Christ is the intentional and deliberate sovereign work of God that has been done to bring you back into relationship with him. It is achieved through the humiliating death of his son, not under sufferance, not under duress, not under force. It's not like God the Father sort of said, right, you go. There's a willingness in Jesus that he says, I will go. Yet not my will, but your will be done. 
and done so that his enemies might be saved. Saved from sin. Saved from hell. Saved from the wrath of God. Saved from eternal damnation and separation from the glory of God and given the joy of eternal life. Saved because Jesus gives darkness the authority to reign under the sovereign hand of the Father and that the purposes of eternity in that moment might triumph. Evil will briefly come to full expression, but after three days, uh, then life will triumph. And all the more for all of those who are enemies of God. And we see this reality with clarity in the middle of the passage. That little tiny section that I've skipped over where I think right there we see the ultimate power of Jesus on display. Let's look again from verse 50. One of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear, and Jesus answered, No more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. If there's any doubt that Jesus is the Lord of this situation, if you have any doubt that Jesus is truly in charge of what's going on here, if you have any doubt that Jesus knows exactly what he's doing in handing himself over to these people, it is entirely dispelled by this moment. But what does Jesus do here? Well, he acts towards Malchus. That's the name of the guy, Malchus the servant. Malchus, his enemy. And he acts towards him with mercy and grace. Whether he picked up the ear and somehow reattached it or replaced the whole ear, we don't know. But what we do know is that Jesus acts with compassion towards an enemy. So Jesus shows love for an enemy. So Jesus shows mercy to an enemy. And in the midst of a now silent, vigilante crowd, Jesus makes it clear that he is no threat to the state. He has no desire to engage with them in battle. And more than that, we hear in this small moment a resonance of the cross. The gospel is a message of healing and hope and love for every person who is an enemy of God. And Jesus displays all of that and more right here. This moment isn't about an ear. This moment is about what Jesus will do when darkness reigns. It's about what Jesus will do because darkness reigns. It's about what Jesus will do through the reign of darkness. He'll bring love, hope, and healing to enemies. Enemies like you. Enemies like me. There's a great hymn that goes like this. Guilty, helpless, lost were we. Blameless Lamb of God was He. Sacrificed to set us free. Hallelujah. What a Savior. What a moment in which the mercy of God is seen laid out for you and for me and for all who are watching. And yet look at what happens next. 
from verse 54. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. And Peter followed at a distance. When some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight and she looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replies. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. And Peter replies, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And just as he was speaking, the cock crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. And before the cock crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. You know, I read the end of verse 62 and I am sad for the man curled up in the garden. He's there, he's denied the Lord and he is weeping bitterly and he dearly wishes he'd made a different choice. But as I look at Peter there in the midst of the garden, I myself am humbled and I feel a sense of foreboding. I feel a sense of warning. It's not just for me. It's for each one of us. You may shake your head at Peter and and shake your head in shame at him. He got to hear Jesus' voice. He got to see Jesus' miracles up close and personal, and he denied Jesus. But do not think for even one moment that you might behave in some way remarkably differently. Do you really think you would? When I look into the eyes of Peter, it's like I look into a mirror and it's like I have to ask myself the question, will I fall to the power of the crowd or will I stand with the weakness of Jesus? The problem Peter faced is the same, Peter, same problem each one of us face all the time. When you are surrounded by the world, when the world is just caving in upon you, when you feel like you are under pressure to stop trusting Christ, what do you do at that point? I know none of us want to feel like an outcast. None of us want to feel like the outsider. None of us want to be ridiculed at work because we share a Christian view or uphold a Christian virtue. And none of us want to get flack at uni because we go off to the Christian group or we take part in the Christian mission. Uh, we don't want flack from friends as we sort of you know, uphold a Christian view on sexuality or something else like that. 
But the world that surrounds us, that swirls around us, is trying to call Jesus out of you, flush Jesus out of you, rip Jesus out of you. And there will be more and more to come. Oh, it's, it's easy to admit that you follow Jesus in this crowd, isn't it? When you're standing with this group of people, anyone here would say, I'm a Christian, that's why I'm here. What when you're with a different crowd? What when you're away from others? What when your life perhaps even is threatened to the point of death? How many times has your voice, how many times have your actions, how many times has the inactivity of your hands just in the last week declared to the people around you, woman, I don't know him. How many times by the things that you do do you just speak the same words that Peter spoke when he denied Christ? It's so easy for us to deny Jesus and pattern ourselves after the thinking of the world. I want to say to you tonight, if that describes you, if you see in yourself, somehow in the last hours, in the last days, during the last week, that you have indeed denied this same Lord, then I want you to remember a man called Malchus. The man who had his ear cut off. I want you to remember Malchus because Jesus came to him, an enemy, and showed compassion and mercy and love and healed an enemy and did so there and then ultimately did so at the cross for you. If you know that you are someone who has denied Christ in the midst of the world, when surrounded by a crowd pressing in upon you, I want to urge you tonight to return to Jesus. Come again to the man who willingly went to death for you. Come again to the man who let himself be taken to death for you. Come again to the man who died for you, whose blood has overcome every sin. And let us pray. Let us pray for each other. Let us pray for ourselves. That we might be those who, when surrounded by the crowd that does not want us to follow Jesus, let us pray that we might be the people who stand firm. Let us pray that we might be the people who have the wisdom to keep trusting Christ. And let us pray that we might also be the people who have the courage to keep speaking of Christ out into a world, out into a crowd that doesn't know him, love him, or trust him. Let us pray that we'll be recipients of grace and that we'll walk in his mercy day by day. How about I pray for that now? Let's pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, we praise and thank you for the mercy of Christ. 
And we pray, Heavenly Father, you would give us the strength to stand firm, the wisdom to trust in Jesus and the courage to speak of Jesus. Lord God, where we have failed at this, hear our prayers and we thank you for your mercy and grace. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. I'll just give everyone um, a final minute to submit your questions. So my first question for you, Nigel, is how was Cairns? Was it good in the end? Look, it was actually excellent. Uh, We camped in a little caravan park and uh, we were there for three weeks. It was fantastic. I didn't know that you couldn't swim at the beach till we went there, though. I mean, you can, but it's not a good idea. Crocodiles. Lots of crocodiles, especially when it rains, because they all get flushed down the river and then walk up the main road of Cairns. Keen? I've been to Cairns. I didn't know that, so (laughs) I don't know what I was doing when I was there, but (laughs) not being observant, clearly. Um, We have a few questions for you. Um, The first one is, um, you mentioned that Jesus um, was being defended by Peter, which was bizarre. But is it wrong to defend our king when he comes under scrutiny? Um, And if yes, what is the biblical way? Yeah, uh, excellent. So uh, in the story, you've got uh, Jesus heading in a certain direction towards the cross. It's actually interesting. uh, It's the second time that Peter has actually tried to stop Jesus from doing what he was going to do. So when when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ... Peter then, Jesus then says, oh, so now you know that I'm the Christ, I'm going to die on the cross. And, and Peter goes, what? You should not do that. And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. You'd think he would have learnt the first time. Second time around, he's like, no, don't die on the cross, I'll chop off someone's ear. And, and that is a situation where Jesus is uh, heading in the direction of death and determinedly determined to do so. I don't think that that sets a paradigm for how we should respond when someone then speaks against Jesus totally different setting. Unless, of course, you meet Jesus and he's going towards his death again, then do what he says. But, but that's unlikely to happen. So how do you do that well? Uh, I think uh, you do that well by, uh, I think, three things. Uh, defending the name of Jesus. Number one, pray. Pray for the person that you are speaking to. And, and never underestimate the power of God. And, and let us be people who put uh, God before people. Number two, you do that with the scriptures. Uh, I think the very best way to defend Jesus is actually to reveal Jesus. Uh, We can get very tied up in apologetics and having 58,000 answers to difficult questions. I actually think that some of the best things that you can do with someone who doesn't believe in, thinks Jesus is weak or something else, is actually open the Bible and read one of the Gospels with them. So number one, uh, pray. Number two, use the Scriptures. Number three, always with humility and grace and a listening ear. Uh, And I often find that someone who is passionately against Jesus uh, or against the church or Christian people, just keep prayerfully asking questions and and examining what's going on for that person. Sometimes the issue is not Jesus at all. Sometimes the issue is the way they've been treated by Christians. And I actually have sometimes in a conversation where someone has been attacking Jesus, ended up apologising 
that the Christian world treated someone so badly. And that then led to opportunities to actually talk about Jesus. So prayer, Bible, grace, humility, eager listening uh, and thinking. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. Um, the next question. So Peter denied Jesus at a pre-Holy Spirit stage, so before Acts 2, then changed once receiving the Holy Spirit. What are we to think if, when we deny Jesus with the Holy Spirit? Yeah, excellent question. Uh, so I think in the case of uh, Peter, certainly he's going to receive the Spirit in Acts chapter 2. Uh, and one of the things, I was talking to someone about this this week actually, is that we, so for, for Peter, certainly there is a, this all happens without the spirit. And we might therefore think to ourselves, and I assume this is what the question might be thinking, is, you know, if I deny Jesus, am I then without the spirit? Um, I think my answer is no. Uh, you can know that you have the spirit of God if you trust Christ. So it's really clear in the scriptures that the spirit is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance that is given to you by faith. So if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, the promise of the gospel is that you will be saved. Now, equally, there are moments where we may actually stand back from or you know, deny Jesus or something else like that. I don't think that in that moment that you've somehow been de-spirited because that's impossible. Uh, neither do I think in that moment that you have somehow stepped out of the Father's hand because that's impossible. Uh, I, I think in that moment you are sinning and you just need to return to the Lord. And remember that his hand is extended to you in mercy and grace. And so I would encourage us to be people where we see ourselves caught up in sin. Maybe open up the first chapter of the book of 1 John. And the first chapter of 1 John actually helped lead you through praying and confessing sin and recognising that our God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think also uh, sometimes you can find yourself in, uh, in, a, in a really difficult rut or situation, and this is where our growth groups or close friendships and other people become really helpful and actually say to someone, I need your help. Liv, I need your help. I, I need you to pray for me, and I need you to workshop with me how I can do this because I'm not doing a good job at uni of standing up for Jesus. I'm in my philosophy class, and every single person thinks that religious people are freaks, and I'm like what do I do now? You know, can you help me? Can you pray for me? And the beauty of Christian fellowship is that we actually are able to do that support and encourage each other in the midst of that. So don't, don't ever pretend that you're a Christian island. Just look around for a moment. Look around all the people who are here. Even if you're in the overflow, just look around. Look at all the people. I can see you guys out there. I almost walked all the way out to the overflow just to freak you out, but I didn't. It's all right. But, but, uh, but we are not Christian islands. I think too often we sort of behave like we are Christian islands and we don't call on other people for help in a myriad of different ways and I'd highly commend that. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. Um, it would be great as if a community we could share more because I think the moment someone says they're struggling with something, everyone's like, whew, me too. And then we yeah. can have a chat about it. Yeah. Um, so if you want to chat about struggling being Christian at work, come have a chat to me. We can pray for each other in that. Um, maybe one last question. Um, since we know the wages of sin is death, how did Jesus die if he was without sin? Uh, yeah. Uh, Jesus died because he took your sin on his shoulders. 
So here's a little, here's a helpful little illustration. Some of you will have seen this a hundred times. I want you to imagine that this book here, which is a Bible, so just imagine it's a different book now. I want you to imagine that this book contains a list of every sin you've ever done. Some of you think that that's a little too thick. Some of you think that's volume one. Right? So we're, we all have a different perception of our sinfulness. But, but it's like that collection there actually blocks your relationship with God. And here's Jesus, no blockage. He's perfectly innocent before God and, and he is entirely innocent of all sin, has a perfect relationship. There is no reason that Jesus has to die except that in coming to earth, he takes upon his shoulders your sin. And he dies under the weight of your sin and mine and everyone else's. And so he bears and receives the wages not of his own sin but of yours. And so he goes to death such that we might be freed and have a relationship with God that is the exact relationship that Jesus had and Jesus does have as he rises from the dead and his sin is conquered and done away with completely. I think on that note we might sing and praise God Sounds for good. that and other things. Excellent. Uh, I'll, I'll, I've got one last thing that I want to say. Uh, I want you to come with me to 1 Peter. Come with me to 1 Peter. Uh, just grab your Bible or your phone, 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, I don't know whether Peter was inspired to uh, write these words in 1 Peter chapter 2. So we're looking from verse uh, 21. I don't know whether Peter was inspired to write these words because of what we just read tonight or uh, whether it is just part of uh, the things that he has thought about. But I want to finish just by reading uh, this little section and making one last comment. Verse 21, 1 Peter 2, 21, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insult at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins, that is, that sins are no longer for us, and live for righteousness because the righteousness of Christ is everything for us. By his wounds you have been healed. Now listen to verse 25. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. As we reflect upon what happened tonight with Peter, it was like he suddenly again became a sheep going astray. But we are those sheep who have been corralled back with Christ. We have returned to Christ. We live with Christ. And I want to encourage you tonight that if you need to return to Christ, you, you do that. And in the moment that you turn away from Christ, remember that what he did for you at the cross was actually open the way for you to return to him. Don't walk off again. Just stick with Jesus, who died for you, that you might be saved. Amen.